every loving one of you. This is Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez. Welcome back. I'm so excited about this episode. April was the last time we recorded a podcast, and wow, what a difference two months make. We are now living in a post-vaccine world. I've been fully vaccinated. Most of my friends and family have been fully vaccinated. And I'm feeling hopeful that we are on the right path. We're still in this transitional, vulnerable period. The divisions are still there, and there's turmoil in our government, for sure. But I remain hopeful that as the pressures of this pandemic come down, people will find some sort of compromise, because the constant ill will is exhausting. We're seeing some unprecedented efforts that threaten our democracy, and that's that's something sadly we can't ignore. I don't want to dwell on politics because that that should be its own podcast episode, but I do think the midterm elections are going to determine how this all works out. So please vote in your local and national elections. Support candidates that care about our democracy and are willing to make a stand where it counts. Okay, that's all I want to say on that matter for now. Although I'm feeling comfortable going into public spaces, I'm still nervous about it. I'm still a bit cautious when I'm around people. I don't know. We're not sure yet if this is the beginning of the end or if this is just another quiet period and we're going to get hit with an upsurge at some point later on this year. We just don't know. There are variants out there, and that's scary. Seeing images of India was horrible. I can't help but feel guilty at times. And guilt can be a privileged emotion. Here you are watching horrible things happening around you, but you're in a safe environment, and you can maintain that environment. You feel grateful and perhaps even relieved that your hardships are small compared to what is going on outside your bubble. But at the same time, you feel you need to do more to help people out. And and finding how to do that is challenging right now. Before the pandemic, I volunteered to pack groceries at the food bank. But during the pandemic, I had to limit my interactions with the public. I could only support those food banks by making donations. I have elderly parents who depend on me for many different things. I couldn't risk getting sick, so I stopped donating my labor, and that's driving me a little, that's driving me a little crazy. I enjoy being out there, so not being able to mingle with others feels wrong to me. I feel like I'm failing at a certain social obligation. Over the last year and a half, I've been channeling this energy by extending the mission of our press. Every donation we receive at Digging Press we use to pay our contributors and to support our publications, which in turn offer contributors publication credits and opportunities. I know this is a very small thing to do, but I think it's also a helpful thing to do. Everything matters. Anything you can do to help others matters. Not all of us can be out there on the field, but that doesn't mean we can't exercise some form of social responsibility. For me, it's a matter of spreading the word, of opening doors for others. If you can help someone out in any way, do so. And do it at your pace. Do it at your ability level. But do something. Don't just sit there and let the world crumble around you. Pick up a can from your neighbor's yard. Donate clothes. Support your animal shelters. I don't want to be self-righteous or dictatorial about these instructions because, again, I get it. Some of us are busy. Some of us have children that are depending on us to be there for them. Some of us have family members, like I do, that require help, that require assistance. And we're human. And we get tired. That's okay, too. I think it's important that we exercise self-care, too. I struggle with this myself. It feels selfish to take care of ourselves when so many people need help. But taking care of yourself, making sure you're okay so that you're there for people is important. So do practice self-care. Eat your veggies, go out for walks, do whatever it is that helps you get there. Something that has helped me in terms of self-care and also in terms of living up to this social responsibility 
is my work as a series editor for our chapbook series. I've been working on our third chapbook publication throughout this pandemic. We have an annual Digging Press chapbook competition, and our forthcoming title is Every First and Fifteenth by Dimitri Reyes. The chapbook is scheduled for publication on June 30th, but if you want to make an advanced purchase of the book, pre-sales begin June 10th, so um, do visit our shop at diggingpress.com for more information on that. Anyway, I've been working on this chapbook uh, with Dimitri Reyes, who has been an absolute pleasure and joy to work with. He is communicative, he's energetic, he's passionate. He has been there every step of the way, helping us understand his process and giving us access into his creative world. We are so grateful for this. And our goal has been to capture Dimitri's spirit within the printed page of his chapbook. So that's been fun to do. I've enjoyed talking to Dimitri throughout this process so much that I wanted to share a conversation with you. I invited Dimitri to come on the podcast and share his poetry and his thoughts with you. Of course, we discussed every 1st and 15th, as well as his creative motivations and influences. We also talked about his hometown, Newark, New Jersey, and his collaborations with New Jersey artists and organizations. Dimitri Reyes is a Puerto Rican multidisciplinary artist, content creator, organizer, and educator from Newark, New Jersey. You can learn more about him at DimitriReyesPoet.com. He also has a wonderful YouTube channel by that same name, so do look for that as well. So here's my conversation with Dimitri Reyes. So, Dimitri Reyes, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? Um, So, I've been hanging out and enjoying my first year of being a newlywed. Uh, My wife and I got married during COVID. So, that was interesting. We're we're very, we're we're very, like, to ourselves and private. And we don't have that much family. So, um, that didn't really change. But what did change was not being able to really have a honeymoon or go somewhere or celebrate. But it's been a very interesting year, especially with where we live. We live in an 88 square foot apartment. It's like a micro apartment. So there was a lot of learning how to be a new husband um, and how to exist in a small space and not be able to go many places because of COVID and because of working from home. And we've gotten closer than we've ever gotten before because of that experience. So that was fun. Um, and it's still fun. It's still going every day. We recognize it and acknowledge it every day. It's just like, you know, it's it's the beginning of, of forever with someone who's like your best friend. So it's it's really great. And I, I think the second part of that, too, is that I've been working a lot on my own art, artistic practice. Mm-hmm. After my MFA, I was kind of positioned uh, at being a performance poet. I'm from the city of Newark and uh, Newark has an amazing, amazing, amazing art scene, especially a literary scene and pride themselves on the hip hop, the R&B, the jazz and the spoken word. Being that I'm I'm such a running and gunning kind of person and I was always at readings and stuff. And because COVID, there weren't that many community spaces. I took that time to own my craft. I started committing myself to memorizing my work. I, I've been trying to elevate my own artistic identity while also elevating in my own identity, you know, as, as a lover and as a husband and as a best friend. So that's kind of what I've been doing this past year and, and working. So, so, so let's, go, let's go back. So, so you were, what you're saying is pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, you were more out in the public performing and doing all these things with this group of people. And then things changed because obviously the pandemic hit. Is that what you're talking about? With the city of Newark, definitely. And also outside of that, um, in other pockets, um, like another pocket that, that I run with is uh, some of the Asbury underground poets out of Asbury Park and some of the Madison poets a little further up uh, north and west and, um, and with the arts by the people community. Before COVID, uh, the last really big thing I organized was with Arts by the People, and it was called an Across the Platform reading, or it was an Across the Platform event, and we were actually collecting donations for the homeless population. Um, and then with all the, collection, all the collections that we've received, uh, my wife and I, and our really big construction van that we converted into a, a, a van life, tiny home kind of thing, we went around the city of Newark and we were passing things out, the houseless community, so... 
I'm kind of thinking that post COVID when we're all back in the world safely again and, and things are running pretty closely to the point where everyone could just go out to a reading on a Friday night, right? That if I community organize, it's always gonna be towards a bigger purpose, whether it's to donate to a certain organization or donate to a certain community or raise awareness for certain communities. But I, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by a couple of things you've said. I mean, a lot of the community stuff is very admirable. But I want to kind of touch on the MFA program, and then okay. also your involvement in these artistic groups that are community-based, or I guess Newark-based or New Jersey-based. Because mm-hmm. to me, that that's sort of two different things, right? Because you have the MFA program, which is a structured academic environment. Sometimes you don't have the time to be creative in an MFA program because you're catching up with your schoolwork for the program itself. But then there's this, you seem to have found an outlet, an artistic outlet. Was this going on at the same time while you were at the MFA discovering this other group of people? Or was this something that you grew up around? Like, I just want to sort of figure out the two worlds and the connections. It's crazy, uh, uh, Jesse, and thank you for bringing that up. Like the arts hit me like a truck. It all came to me at one time mm-hmm. and it was something I was avoiding for such a long time. And I share this a lot with like uh, uh, high school classes and, and my old middle school students and stuff. Um, the arts kind of found me and it was always there just kind of tugging at my shoulder. You know, like uh, growing up, I always felt like I had to just get a job that was going to make money. And you're, you're sold the dream that arts isn't going to really sustain you. It's not going to feed you. Right. With the MFA. uh <laughs> It's so funny. Shout outs to Michael Van Kalberg, if you're listening in. Uh, He was my comics and graphic novels teacher. He's an excellent writer himself. Um, And and he kind of guided me into the position of saying, hey, you know, like you got the chops to apply to an MFA. Um, And it wasn't until he even gave me the confidence or just even educated me and schooled me that I didn't even know what an MFA was. So I didn't know uh, who I was sitting in front of when Rigoberto Gonzalez was interviewing me sitting in front of when Brenda Shaughnessy was in front of me, uh, right? I didn't know who Rachel Hottis was from another professor in the department uh, before I actually took classes with them and I studied and I was owning my skills. So when I got into the MFA, I was playing so much catch up because all of my peers around me were talking a vocabulary that I had not yet been exposed to. And in doing so, it's like I was... Like you said, I was kind of trying to just play catch up with all the materials and all the books and all the, the the things that they were feeding me, all the rhetoric and theory. But then on the other hand, I was also thinking about the rhetoric, the theory and everything I was getting fed from my peers. So my notebook looked like a mess. I had things that the teachers were saying, I had things that the students were saying, because I didn't even know like what uh, say Sura was or Anaphora, right? Like, and I was discovering these things as I was going along. And the interesting thing about that is it seemed like I had the most teaching experience in my cohort going in. So I actually secured that coveted spot of teaching creative writing, the minor. It wasn't until that second, well, actually that third and fourth uh, semester, which was a part of my second year, uh, that I really was solidified with my voice as a poet. And therefore the students were getting the best experience. And that, Jesse, is where the Nork scene comes in. First semester, um, I started saying I got to get into some of the politics of the Nork arts as well. So I started going to the different like poetry communities, Evolu Culture with Sean Battle was a big one, the People's Open Mic with Mia X. And that's how I also met Marina Carrera with uh, Brick City Speaks, which was a reading series. And that was the first one I was able to go to. And I entered there, uh, she accepted me with open arms, um, her and that community that later became Brick City Collective. I thank them for being my backbone and teaching me that and now we're going to get a little heavy for a sec. Academia could be so insidious with like how it works, right? The mm-hmm. intermittent and the politics of it and like what is deemed a good poem and what makes a poem and stuff like that. Um, so while that's getting taught to you in academia, you know, th- those those poets on the corner, they're, they're nothing but that soul. And from that soul, they get those different artistic practices and, and craft techniques and different methods that they find through some sort of like spiritual or divine source that just feeds into their work. They're getting from different things. They're getting from movies. They're getting from plays. They're getting from hip hop. They're getting it from music. They're getting it from jazz, right? Uh, they're getting it from just being inspired and, and vamping and, and um, just experimenting within their community. And that was the essence of how I wanted to live my poetic career. It was great that I was put in a position where 
I got an MFA. So all of a sudden you're kind of quote unquote in an elitist community, right? That, that's a great stamp of approval, but I knew getting out of the MFA that that's not what I wanted to be about. I wanted to give those, I wanted to give other people like my audience, my readers, that spark that I was getting in the Nork art scene and that I discovered that led me to be the poet who I was. If I never went to the Nork art scene, I would have probably been a different poet. We probably would have been having this conversation. I would have been trying trying to bark up, I don't know, like the Kenyan review or a Prairie Schooner or something that I feel like I would have needed. Yeah. But this is the young poet talking here. I don't know how I'll feel five or 10 years from now, but I feel like I don't need those things. You know, I, I feel like my arts feeds me. Um, I feel like the way you could, art is ever expansive and you can make it into a bunch of different things is ever expansive and that could feed you. Um, and this is going into another conversation that I feel like there's so many other ways to define and sculpt what you think successful is in the arts. And the MFA is one way. For me, the MFA was a stepping stone and it was a launching pad to, to get me to where I really wanted to be and where I felt like I needed to be. And that's with the community. And that's with students, you know, that, that's with people that need our stories. I, it sounds to me like you, you got the best of two worlds and you're using it as a way of bringing your art forth, not in that step-by-step manner where I'm going to get a teaching jam, I'm going to get this journal and this, but you're actually kind of bringing in all these different facets together and not just bringing them in, but learning from them. Because I think a lot of... A lot of young writers, to them, the MFA is everything. Mm-hmm. And it, it drives me a little crazy because it's something. It's not everything. You know, yeah. I think it gives you a foundation, yes, a very important foundation. And it's a great place to make connections and to expand your reading vocabulary, which is what you right. were talking about, that you didn't know that these people were important, famous writers. And, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> which is very exciting for a writer to discover that. I think that's a very exciting place to be. It is. And, you know, I think that was the most genuine introduction to them because I, I love Brenda and Rigo. I, I've turned to them a lot already. You know, this is my this is my first chat book that's coming out with every first and 15th. And I've already been able to turn f- to them for, you know, mentorship and just life in terms of the literary world, in terms of what to do next professionally or personally. I didn't meet them with that stamp or, you know, in their golden blazoned uh, scene of saying, oh, my God, these people are like crazy. They're like icons. Right. Um, Which they are, which they are, but they're also people. And I think that's very important also um, for, for young people and young authors to realize that everyone that has gotten that golden ticket, they're still a person. They're still going to help you, right? They're, they're still they're still talking from their vantage point of experiences. So it, 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 I think it's also important that I didn't know what I was getting myself into because the veil was off before I even walked in the door. You know what I mean? Like this MFA veil. And don't get me wrong, I, the MFA was important. I would not be, I, I would not have the day job I have if it wasn't for my MFA. I wouldn't be able to do my consulting things if I was an MFA. No, this is all good. I think it's important for people to talk about their experiences. Um, but finding art, you know, finding how art enters their lives, because I think everybody has a different story and a different experience. And I do find, though, and I don't know what the source of this is, but there are certain people that they see the matrix <laughs> behind the system. They see that, you know, you need these things, because yes, they do provide the opportunity for you to get employment and to be seen a certain way, if you have, especially if you have an MFA from a particular institution. For whatever reason, people are impressed by certain institutions more than others. And that is something that you can exploit as well. Yeah. Um, but it's important to see that that system is not a perfect system, that it's, it needs to be in a very positive way corrupted <laughs> by people that see the matrix, I, I believe. Definitely. Totally. You know, I'm like, which pillar are you going to take? Right. Um, I I also think a lot of people at a point uh, start to realize that matrix and then they have to make the choice. Right. And you you continue to play the game or you kind of try to find a way around it. Or I know other poets that are doing their own thing now and other artists that have just left it all together. Right. They're like, I just don't need it at all. There is a, um, a system that was in place for a particular group of people, let's say 
Yeah. It doesn't work for every person, every new person that enters it now. That right. pool is much more diverse, not just culturally, but just experience-wise. Like people are coming into the system with different levels of experience, different level educational levels. Maybe they they went to public school their time. They you know they didn't go to private school. They didn't go to these elite schools. But that doesn't mean they didn't read. That doesn't mean they didn't get an education. They had to try a little harder to get it because it wasn't, you know, guaranteed to them. And I, I that's why I think, you know, I, 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 I'm all for corrupting it. <laughs> I'm all for like shaking it up and opening the door. And if I don't see a big established journal giving opportunities to people, what's going to stop me from giving opportunities to people and establishing my own journal and establishing my own system? Definitely. And I think it is important that folks that are getting into those systems now, you know, like, like just for example, like you and I that might have different experiences, you know, like one of the Iowa writers, for instance, right? Uh, Getting into those systems and changing the optics of what that's like and having those hard conversations that other folks are scared to have that we've been having all our lives, right? You know, I mean, we even have those silent conversations of stepping into a space where we can't find ourselves or people like us in those spaces where we have to have those dialogues with ourselves and we have to traverse those spaces in ways that are one going to be safe for us but two that we leave that mark and we, we incite change either by saying it or by leading by example which is really important so let's let's talk about your chat book yeah because um, you mentioned it's your first chat book and of course i'm intimately I'm very intimate with this book because I've been actually editing it and helping bring it to life. I also got to say, like, thank you so much for all the work that you have been putting into this book. And, and, I, and I can I, I can immediately tell that you've put that much work into it. And I appreciate you bringing this story to life because I'm super excited as, as, as this being my first baby. Some of, some of these poems were like pre-MFA some of these poems were during my MFA. I had I a couple of poems in here that were kind of like those light bulb poems or those breakthrough poems. I tried to place some of those moments where I, I had those kind of transitions or those evolutions. So I asked you to bring some poems to read. Do you want to read one? Like, tell us a little bit about it and then sort of go into it. The first poem in there is Breakfast Scene. And this one is was kind of me meditating on just like what the idea was of of growing up, we moved into our first home. And I thought like, oh, like we're freaking set, right? Like we were good enough to afford a home. We're not in the apartment anymore. And, you know, I I would always hear everyone like complaining about bills or like things to fix with the house. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of refinancing, there's bankruptcy, there's things getting destroyed, not having a sink fund to have money to pay for those things, having to do shoddy jobs, uh, that kind of stuff. I I always felt like we were pretty well off growing up and I didn't know until I started taking anthropology and sociology in college, even in an urban community, when you move up, you are redlined to a certain area because of money. And they try really hard, uh, those, the banks in your area to get you into a position where you are then house poor. And we were house poor for the longest time, right? Like I was able to get a lot of things I wanted growing up, but at the expense of them always having running credit card bills and those credit card bills coming into contact with like loans for the house. And it was always an interesting liminal space because while we had a house, we were still able to like be on welfare and WIC and food stamps. So it it was, so this is that first poem. This one's called Breakfast Steam. Negative spaces in a wave of color going through the forehead between the blurry ears that speak a mouth that listens with a chin that helps lips open still blurry, the hair rosado y gris, the scalp, the thought bubble lights of deli shelves, wick, cheese, eggs, milk, the pan cubano memories, the black flecks toasted over an open burner, coffee on a chin at the kitchen table, the heat in a cup, Wavy are the eyes of a Yankees fitted. The school uniform and sneakers on top, a credit card. They too all sit at this kitchen table. I'll pay it next week, mijo. These words so blurry. I think I do sense that you're very young when you wrote this. In that way where you were really tapping into um, 
this imagery that to me is so incredibly familiar, not just from my own life, but just I can totally see what this is, this landscape that you've built here. Mm. And it felt it felt very welcoming, this poem to me. Yeah. And I and I, I do wonder, like when we, you know, when we tap into a larger audience, like someone who maybe doesn't have this experience, I wonder what they're going to tap into, because I'm pretty sure they're going to tap into something because everybody mm-hmm. has experienced hardship in their lives, no matter what your background is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is just a very it is a very soulful poem. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I always think of like Hugo with the triggering subjects. And one thing that I've always hung on to was the idea and imagery of having certain subjects that people could hang on to, even if they're not familiar with your experience. Right. So, I mean, food is just an, a universal contact. So just the breakfast, the ritualization of breakfast, you know, someone's going to say, oh, like, I remember having breakfast conversations or, oh, I remember just picking up a Pop-Tart and leaving, which I had a lot of days like that too. But there's that's something to connect with. Sports just comes up in my work sometimes. Um, so like the Yankees fitted maybe. Um, what's really interesting though, you said that you can tell that it was a younger voice here. And, and I, I, I kind of I kind of see it too. And while you were speaking, I, I realized for the first time that I felt like I was more vulnerable in my earlier poems, which is interesting because sometimes you kind of want to cloister and you want to protect yourself in your earlier poems. And then as you age in your like poetic journey, you kind of open up and you crack open a little more. And I noticed I learned uh, in my adulthood how to be a bit more elusive and a bit more secretive and have those secret moments or Easter eggs in poems as I grew up. So some of these poems are just straight raw. Like there's this other poem that if I could compare this one to um, when a roadside altar speaks It is still very raw. It's an experience for me being younger, but it's shrouded in a complete metaphor. And that's how I find myself protecting myself as an adult. So this book was also a cracking open of the chest in a way, because I was beginning to reconcile a lot of, you know, my runnings arounds as a teenager and and how I saw things and how I experienced things. I wonder, I do wonder about that, because as writers, we're always between all the different worlds in the lifetime. We're in our past, we're in our present, we're in a possible future, we're in what could have happened, what may have happened. You know, we're always touching some timeline, whether it's real or unreal. Right. And that past timeline, I mean, I always think that I was deep, a deeper person <laughs> when I was younger. <laughs> and as I got older, the antenna got fuzzy. You know, things got more complicated and you do become more guarded and you are more careful how you say your words and you understand that sometimes you can hurt someone. So you avoid hurting them, for instance, and keeping something to yourself. Whereas when you're young, sometimes you spit it all out and you don't care or you don't think you're hurting anybody because it's all about you. You know, it's it's just a different brain. Right. That's such an interesting idea about like the social responsibility of what you put on the page too right like who's gonna read it and these days i'm making a lot of choices uh in this idea of responsibility and putting this 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 truth out right and thinking that it might hurt a person or a person might read it right the conversation becomes is this something that needs to is this something that needs to weather the hurt and is it something that strangers are going to feel like they need to not hurt anymore. I it's it's crazy as writers and artists we're always making those choices. We learn that the hurt isn't always bad. Which is interesting. I'm actually working on a project for the book's release. Um, and with one of those projects, I'm linking up with a friend that is kind of in this in one of these ending poems, right? And during a conversation, because now he's a professional breakdancer. So he we're gonna set we're gonna set his dance to one of these poems. I found myself at the end of this conversation of us getting ready to collaborate, uh, me just saying sorry and, and really just talking through anything, anything toxic that, that was going on when, when we were children in terms of either um, trying to find ourselves, trying to protect ourselves, you know, different idea, senses of toxic masculinity and such. When I was penning this book and putting it together, 
I was telling myself, man, I really hope that my community could receive this. And after having a conversation with my, my friend, one of my best friends from high school, I can see that that can actually happen, which is really exciting. You know, writing it so the, the, the folks that do have those MFAs can find something to enjoy, but also writing for my people, for my city, you know, for my friends and family that are here and not here anymore. I know you grew up in Newark, right? Mm. And these poems in particular, like what, why are you dedicating this book to Newark? Like, what is that meaning? Who, who I came to be came from just my environment. All of these poems that were written, they're so linked to place. And I can imagine uh, this book and my next, my next two books. I'm so obsessed with how large Newark is and so many places where I've actually been in the city from like maybe 13 to about 19, well, 13 to 18, I was in so many places outside. I was always outside. I was always at a friend's house or on someone's block or, or going somewhere, hanging out here. So there's so much of me in my city. And I'm pretty sure that there's so, it's so like that for so many people because it's so alive in that neighborhood. And I know I keep saying so, but I can't find any other way to kind of emphasize the fact that you are running into someone on every block. You know, you know someone wherever you go. I can go right now and I could still see, uh, I, I could still run into people. Um, downtown Newark, you, you, you could run into everybody and their mamas and papas down there. It's crazy. Yeah, I had to dedicate this book to Newark. I, I, I felt like it would do a disservice uh, to myself if I didn't acknowledge that it's the city that actually made me. I didn't have, I wouldn't have had any of those opportunities if they weren't located in Newark. I'm so based in Newark. Cause Newark, Newark, you know, I think Newark has bad reputation, right? People who don't know the city, all think of it a particular way because of they see in the news really. Yeah. But, I, but, but Newark, like you said, is a large city with many different neighborhoods and there's a unique quality to Newark. So I kind of wanted to get that flavor because I don't know Newark that well. I know New York because I grew up there. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know Newark that well. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different places. I, I feel like one, it's the news. Two, I, I, I feel like nowadays it's less of the news and more about the dialogue. Right. Um, and and, and that's, the, that's the really big thing. If, if you look at it outside of like the arts and the financial district, a lot of it still isn't in the best shape. And now you see a lot of different politicians and grassroots organizations trying to pour into their communities, which I think is very important, but that's not the stuff that's going to make the news, right? Um, New Jersey, uh, Newark being like the, the third largest carjacking capital is going to make the news because that sounds better. But, you know, the Newark Water Coalition that's giving pallets and pallets of water to folks in need during the Newark water crisis, that's not going to make the news, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I do think it's dialogue. Um, I think some of what social media is putting out is raising the bar and how we're seeing the city. I think uh, the arts are raising Newark. Um, so a lot of Nork people are making their own opportunities. Um, and there, there's that space where we are trying to still claim that and say that this is Nork and this is who we are. So that's why I think this book is really important. You know, um, Jasmine Manns, uh, another poet that reps Nork, she just got published uh, with Penguin Random House. Her book is out now, Black Girl Call Home. Um, I think that's going to be really good for the city. Marina Carrera's uh, book, Save the Bathwater, uh, which is also about Nork, is good for the city. Kathy Kremens is putting out a book about Nork. So there are a lot of uh, these folks that are putting books out with presses that are then going to have them in distribution centers and distribution channels, right? So that's how when people pick up those books, the, the academia folks are going to say, oh, okay, there, there's talent coming from this area. And then hopefully they discover those Ross Harus and Sean Battles and those Mia X's and those um, Rob Hilton's that also have self-published collections. And now, you know, they'll also be in this space. So my hope is that within the next five or 10 years, actually my promise is in the next five or 10 years that a lot of people are going to start looking uh, to Newark as a place that is really breeding the arts. And I'm looking forward to that. You want to read another poem? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll read that poem that kind of coincides or is the, the evolved form of Breakfastine. When a roadside altar speaks. Pop, pop, pop. 
I'll say this fluently. There were sneakers, lots of sneakers. When it happens, it feels Hurricane Harbor hot and wet, swift, the way House of Flats pop tires out their chromes. From here, the sky is a flooded candle. And don't repeat me, but that's how we're really saved. Like a bow around your thumb, a reminder, a milk crate or two from Papi's bodega that quiets down the block. Don't walk by me quietly. Instead, please speak me in my fluency even if you can't hear me. When you see the child's hand, his orange dusted tips wrapped around a forefinger, tell that mother I'm the dark line between each digit. That it's okay to sell my Civic so I could cash one last check. That a pigeon who crosses her is permission to go on and tell my story. That the door always opens the same to the same you, a familiar, where I cry and shake and shake and get held tighter by a giant, her body, the safest gurney. I want to know more about your relationship with rhythm. <laughs> okay, so this is a joke I've been saying a lot lately um, on Zoom. I couldn't become a, a, a punk rocker in a band, <laughs> so I became a poet. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in, in high school, I was really big into like the punk rock and emo scene, um, as well as being influenced by hip hop from some of my friends. And I really, it, it's funny also that when you're a kid, you feel like you have to exist in these character types, right? So you're like, no, today I'm just going to be this. And then tomorrow I'm going to be that, you know, I can't have a My Chem t-shirt and still rep the woo, but you can, right? And once I got into college and I started getting more exposed with music, you know, I, I started seeing that all of these things are, are multidimensional and, and it makes you into, you know, a, a more interesting being. So I found a lot of my music once I started getting into that Newark art scene. And I saw a lot of the folks that were incorporating R&B and hip hop and jazz and music into their work where they had a phone recording on the mic as they were speaking, right? Um, or they had a live band come in and jam, or they had dancers dancing. And slowly but surely, I started tethering all of these things together. And I started saying, the arts don't exist in a vacuum. They could all exist together. And one cannot exist with the other because they all feed one another, right? Um, there's a space for all of them at the table. So I really started to incorporate a lot of music into my work. So that's where the rhythm comes from. Um, one of one of like my favorite poets um, who is now really important in like theater, Reggie Gaines, is all about the rhythm in his work. He's all about the rhythm in his work. Um, I've, I've been lucky. I, I've been lucky enough to have been mentored under him. And he is all about the theatricalization of your work. He's all about the knowing it by heart. He's all about having the music there um, in order to captivate your audience. And, you know, there's also a very classic notion to having that rhythm in your work that goes back to the days of like bards, right? Um, and, and folks, and, and even if we're talking about Puerto Rico, because I am Puerto Rican, um, a lot of like the bomba and plena that they actually play were basically news reports for the people in the neighborhood mm. for those that were illiterate. So they would get their news through the bombasso, through music. Um, so I, I, I try to bring that too. And that, that's a collection I'm actually thinking about in the future too. Like I'm saying it now to speak it into existence. I need to make a bomba album. So anyone that is a drummer on here, please reach out to me. Um, <laughs> we could just create a really big circle. But yeah, like I have so many plans for my work that isn't just what you could actually do on the page and is what you could do with the community. Um, so I'm, I'm super, super excited uh, for this book, for what I get to do with this book and what happens once this book is out and once other folks see that you could find that rhythm in there. I mean, you're talking about punk rock and, and hip hop and all these influences that shouldn't belong, but sort of do belong together. You know, we, we say that we're, uh, we're a journal for, cultural omnivores. And that's exactly what, to me, a cultural omnivore is. It's, it's really someone who's taking everything in yeah. and 
creating and, and, you know, everything's informing you and you're just taking it all in as opposed to you mimicking one thing or, you know, you're, you're, you're taking these things and then what's coming out is unique to you because you're the one that's putting this into your computer. That program that comes out is something you created and no one else created. Right. Right. And I think people need to remember that, that they need to, if you're going to be a writer, if you're going to be a poet, it's great that you read poetry and it's great that you read fiction or nonfiction, whatever your bag is, but it's also really important to listen to music and take that in, go see an art show, yeah, to just walk down the street and listen to people talking. Yes. Being present is so freaking important, right? Um this this past year even i feel like a lot of people have been getting that realization that life is something you need to live right and the way we have that conversation about well what is living life right and really just enjoying every single second that you actually have a lot of people that are writing luckily they they've already started with that getting into practice because they're in constant incubation everything is an idea right um I, there's so many times where i hear people have a conversation i'm like oh i got to write that down i'm taking that and speaking of cultural omnivores that is really just like the two part promise why i wanted to publish with you all because one i love supporting my my local organizations and shout outs to digging press being like one of the coolest new jersey presses and organizations out there and then two the fact that when you look at the stuff you have online like i think really where i discovered y'all hard body the first time was when you were republishing published work by different people and it was it was so vastly different from poem to poem and it's like, and I feel like that's something that y'all have been able to do with the chat books. Y'all have been able to do with what you put online um, and who you have for your reading series and such as that. And as I keep writing, I'm so much more intrigued by the soul in someone's work, you know, rather than where they've been and who, who they published with, you know? Yeah. And I think discovery, for me, it's, it's really a discovery project. Because you, you never know everything. You'll never know everything. You'll mm-hmm. always and should always be constantly surprised. Yeah. That's what living is about. It's about the constant surprise, the constant learning, something that you never thought even was possible. And you mm. can only, for me, I can only do that if I open up the door and let people in. Yeah. And then go, oh, well, that's a different way of writing about that. I never thought of doing it that way, you know? And, and it's sometimes it's not even, I mean, for me, it's not, quality is, is on the list, but it's not the top thing. For me, mm-hmm. it is about, I want to feel that person, the struggle that that piece has. I want to feel that that person worked on this, that they, mm-hmm. they poured their heart into it. And even though it's not the perfect piece, it's not the Paris Review piece or the New Yorker piece, there's still something in that piece that communicates so much more than the perfect piece would. Right. So that's really, I mean, just so I can talk about my own <laughs> life. That's really what that's about. Shine on. Go ahead. Keep on going. <laughs> that. Yeah. Like, first of all, what's the perfect piece? Right. I, I want to throw the word perfect out the window because if it's perfect, I don't want it. You know, I need it. <laughs> to be a little more rough around the edges if it's something perfect it's basically basic or drab right it needs some pizzazz it needs some color it needs some sasong, right mm-hmm. you need some of that some of that grit or some of that imperfectness to in order to teach you to be exposed to something else right to get that different experience and thank you for being the keeper of the keys in your neck of the woods as well because you're leaving that door open for a lot of people and that's important, right? Anyone that's listening that has one key or, or has a connection to a certain group of people or letting other people in, let those other people in because that's how we're going to change that narrative of what perfect would be if you wanted to say that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's constantly changing definition. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's do another poem. Let's get back into this. It- so if, if we're going back to, I, I want to give some more of like my high school pieces. So yeah, yeah. you're going to get an idea. Uh, the folks on uh, tuning in are going to get an idea. All right. 
the folks tuning in are going to get an idea of how I used to rock it in high school a little bit. You're going to kind of get to get a better picture of what kind of student I was and things I used to do. I looked at my high school yearbook again recently, and despite everything, I won teacher's pet because I was really nice with the adults. And I guess they saw something before I saw it. Um, so I really appreciate uh, my teachers from high school. Shout outs to North Tech. Uh, Baruti Kafele, which is he's an amazing like uh, advocate for the black youth and for educators and administrators that teach black and brown youth. He also kind of planted a seed of like social justice and breaking down those different systems in me. So I appreciate him for that. And Miss Santucci for not ratting on me if I ever skipped class a, a couple of times. All right. So I'm going to read two poems back to back. This first one is Snake Eyes crapping out or shooting dice. That moment where you roll the dice and it hits the wall like a bus crash. And the only crumpled dollar left in the world was in your chapstick pocket. And bus tickets became currency and playing fast and loose became currency. And a bunch of crumpled dollars laid like a pile of bodies. And a pile of bodies made you long for the infinity of a debt-free body. So what do you do? You decide to roll again. Doña Maria. She came to America to put precious moments figuras on a shelf, which she did around the restaurant. What she really enjoyed was singing orders of fried food to the cops, the kids, and viejos of the neighborhood while singing boleros. Don't call her Doña. She prefers casa because she doesn't serve her food but offers a taste of holidays and marriages on any given day. Except, of course, this love is paid, but you can bet there is home there from open to closing always packed, always loud, always fragrant, and Maria's hair is aired out now, more grasa than shampoo, where her English is ever clearer outside the store than it was any other Monday evening. With the rent higher than her five-foot frame, she looks at us in our coats, passing our stoops and skateboards after another eight o'clock closing. She says, see you tomorrow, and we say, goodbye, trusting that she is right, trusting she'll come back home. Well, talk about the role of the observer in your poetry. How active is your observer? How passive do you play with those and why? My poetic self picks up on a lot of other friends and people I would have hoped to be like. Like my, my wife is someone who is also very observant and in the backseat of things. And I think when you are in those moments, it's easier to see the forest from the trees, right? So in my first poem as the dice player, I was actually in it. That poem was like 95% myself. The second poem was kind of like a half and half where I uh, supersede myself and I also start becoming some of my friends and different people in the community in order to use that as kind of like a tool to tell the story or, or use those different characters as a, as a defining piece or a machine to tell that story. Did I answer your question, Jesse? I talk a lot. I'm sorry. I, th- I think it's, um, it's a hard question to answer, I think, for poets. Um, yeah. Because I, it's uh, it's almost like a clinical question, so I was intrigued how people <laughs> go yeah. roundabout way of. Sometimes the roundabout way of answering is more interesting than the actual answer that I'm yeah. looking for, because I'm not really looking for an actual answer. If that okay. makes sense. <laughs> so, so you're good. <laughs> Keep it flowing. Wait, can we can we please try it? Can you ask me the question again? And I'll try to- <laughs> so my 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 thing is that I I I believe poets um, usually create an observer that's their narrator Mm -hmm. and that observer has usually some kind of keen insight into whatever it is that's being presented um and sometimes that observer is is a passive observer or sometimes they're in the action of the poem right they're part of the poem Mm -hmm. so i i i see those as as sort of um a a jekyll and hyde sort of relationship like some poems do that some poems don't Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering about 
Do you see that? And, or do you think that that exists in your poetry? Yeah, I mean, I definitely get that. I definitely get the Jekyll and Hyde thing where sometimes I'm in the, the thick of the poem and other times I'm kind of the observer that is just kind of overseeing what's going on. Um, I would say that even a problem I have with writing, most of my poetry always starts out in the eye. Right. And, you know, it's it's great to kind of get those different angles and, and different facets. So even if I'm talking in the voice of someone else, I'm still trying to enter their body, you know, and, and, and possess their thoughts in order to explore and become the I. And it isn't until later that I become like an ancillary third person. Right. Um, so in, in this poem, for instance, there was a very long version where I was trying to be Maria, but it wasn't working because I'm not Maria. Right. Mm. Um, so once I was able to basically put down what I was able to observe about her and then what I could observe about myself and my own movements, that's how I kind of create. So um, I guess the short answer, because I kept trying to get to a short answer with you is yes. Sir. <laughs> 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 If that's what you wanted, Jesse. Well, I'm also, I'm also like, I, I'm so intrigued by that you in high school wrote some of these, right? Is that what you're saying? That some of these were written yeah, in high school? So, uh, these were like scribbles in, in high school. I really didn't start writing my high school poems until I was in college. Okay. So there were passing thoughts. You know, I, I wrote like the only one that I actually started writing here was the dice poem, but that was actually from an essay. And then like, it, it became a poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that was just like a memory I had from that. But no, when I was in college, so the youngest writings from this book probably came from maybe like my second and third year in college. Mm -hmm. Because I, I started getting the idea of like what a poem would actually look like. I mean, that's fairly young to me, you know, to sort of think about poetry and 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 put something down on paper. Even even college to me seems young. And I'm I'm wondering like, is this something that you learned? At a yes. younger age? Okay. Um, yeah. So in, in high school, there was like a small, uh, it was like an after school program where they did like hip hop and, and like lyric writing and, and stuff like that. And I, I had, I had a small band in high school too. So like I, I used to try to write some lyrics. So that's kind of, but I didn't know like what would look like a poem or a poem didn't need to look like a poem. I just didn't know what I was doing really. Um, but in college, that class I ended up teaching in my MFA which also helped I, I, I had as a student while I was in my undergrad. So that's when I started really writing poems and, and putting these things into motion. So my first semester, um, cats out of the bag, I guess, a lot of the lyrics from high school started trying to be transcribed into poems. So when I was a professor, I kind of knew when like some raps or, or, or song lyrics were getting passed off as poems. But then again, I was like, oh, well, you know, a poem's a poem's a poem's a poem, so. <laughs> I was okay with that as well. So it was an intuitive sort of drive. Yeah, yeah. Good. But okay. so how how close are you to your family? Um <sighs> it's not a touchy subject. <laughs> oh, it, it's actually, you know, it, it's a very touchy subject. I, I spoke about it once um on another interview, but there's a lot of like uh toxicity that happened, like familiarly. Um family trauma kind of got in the way of things mental health mental illness um so i had i had to dismiss myself i don't want to i mean i don't want to you know talk about your family necessarily but i just for me it, it sounds like because i i feel like i'm a, very, a fairly intuitive person because of the way i grew up but i did i learned things just not artistic things right right the arts was definitely something that came from the outside world into my world mm -hmm. and that i took in intuitively and responded to it that way. Yeah. And I and that there's I kind of sense that in you that that there was something of that going on. I, I totally appreciate you uh like sniffing that out and <laughs> feeling that vibration. No, um, and truthfully, it's uh I think that intuition comes from a sense of survival, right? Like a learning just how to navigate things, um, learning. Uh, not only how to code switch, like what we would need to do in like academia and amongst our friends, but even how to co code switch within our own households mm -hmm. and within different neighborhoods in order to get by and, and get things across. Right. Um, so a lot of like my uh, apologies for some of these friends that are coming up um, were because of like 
kind of like my upbringing and what I took as like good traits or not such good traits and trying to just like rectify that as a fully fledged adult adulting in this world right now um, and trying to just be a better person for, for the greater good in the whole, you know, try to help other strangers, try to help other friends and other communities from, from those different experiences. Like uh, we all, like, like you mentioned earlier, everyone has familial traumas and childhood traumas that they need to sort out. Right. Sometimes you need to remove yourself in order to not fall into those cycles again. Putting energy where people are going to be around you and receive that energy and, and take it holistically and take it completely and really just run with it. You know, um, it's unfortunate at some points uh, with my with my family, I felt like I was kind of grasping at straws um, or I was just punching at ocean waves. You know, that there's no there, there's nothing that's really going to be resolved. Um, yeah. You're just speaking a different language. Think, thinking differently about certain things, not not wanting to to get out of certain process processes and thought processes or systems, and you know, I I, I had to dismiss myself before one, I was either going to fall into things again, or two, like it could have either ruined like relationships or ruined jobs and stuff, you know. Yeah, and there's always going to be a piece of you, right? That that's part of that world, whether you like it or not, that you have to work through. Um, like for me, it's rage. I mean, I get enraged sometimes, and, yeah. but I'm but I'm very aware I'm getting enraged. Yeah, and realize that's that's something that I learned early on. That's not a good thing. Like I have to really channel this in a different way, and that's I don't think you can do that if you're in in it. I think you can only mm-hmm. do that when you're away from it and you can see it from the outside. Definitely. Definitely. You know, as, as Latinx people, we are beautiful people. We are a varied people, but we're also a very uh, angry people because of some things that have been kind of given through us through systems, right? Like, especially for all the Latinx folks that grew up on the East coast that moved up here from wherever we were. And we're like at the grit of the grit. And the bottom of the bottom, it, it's it's so easy to fall into certain practices and those practices become generational, right? So, and then, and then those things that might be toxic or might be detrimental to our own health, whether it's body, mind, spirit, they become, they become institutionalized in, into how we navigate familial relationships. And when I was able to move out the first time and I came back and I tried to help try to incite some of that change, I learned you know, and I'm still growing. I'm still, you know, fairly young at at 27. You can't change people. They got to want to change, you know, they're going to want to have to put the effort. You, you, You can say things, but you can't actually just shake it out of them. And that was really what I wanted to do the second time going back home. And it was really hurtful. And then at that point I, I realized that I couldn't reconcile that. So, you know, I, I hope I, I'm wishing them the best and I, and I, and I hope that they do find it. They, they get that moment that they're like, Oh, okay, this is what I could do to, to change things around. So I'm really hoping for that for them. And, and your greatest gift is that you're going to move on, you know, and you're going to just do something. And yeah. that is a gift, whether they see it or not, we, you know, that's just the way it, work, it works for some of us, but that's okay. You're going to be yeah. very successful. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Thank you. Speak into existence, Jesse. Thank you. <laughs> so we're going to do one last poem to close it out. Okay. So going, going off of everything we said, so this one actually goes out to like, you know, my bloodline, my friends, uh, the community at large, um, anyone I've ever been in contact with. And Jesse, thank you for having me. And all of you, thank you for listening. You left the neighborhood. You left your old friends. You left your parents, grandparents, siblings, aunts, uncles. You left the corner store. You left where you discovered gay and cigarette and pot and beer. You left the thoughts of how they all complimented each other, like skipping school and pizza. You left the dirty mirror pics in the bathroom with the light on, with laughter, with the stained glass butterfly you made in a dusty summer. You left the mariposa strung up on the shower gancho. You left memories of robbery that taught you what trust meant, what it felt like to have trust taken from you. You left driveways where you'd ride scooters, friends in circles taking turns to see who'd catch who the real catch. There would be no one to chase unless someone left first. So you left the various colored stoops. You left the side of the house that led you to church. 
that showed you faith in anything. You left the other side that showed you the street that showed you the cutting of cement, skateboard wheels caught in cracks, the rock salt that split your knees. You left the fatty fried flesh. You left learning one inch rakes were not for show, that they broke pebbles and cultivated dead flowers that were synonyms for addicts. You left our saturated memories. That time we were about to beat up Miguel's drunk dad or when dopehead Eddie went losing down the hill with your skateboard. Remember when he never brought it back? When a friend was so high he fell off the roof running from the cops and you did nothing but laughed at his hospital to prison transfer. Do you remember how we weren't allowed upstairs at night? How everything smelled like burnt plastic and they blamed it on the cheap incense? Do you remember when one of us finally made money on the streets and everyone helped to spend it except you because you left the blood on the walls, signing our names with the punches. You left those walls, those noises, the swings, the half-missed and hope attempts to find ourselves. We were the tendons in your hands. And when we separated, you cried. You broke the wall so hard, the one we're still trying to climb. We left you before you left us. And you know it was better that way. Dimitri Reyes, thank you for sharing your heart with us today. This has made me so happy. Thank you so much. Oh.